Do we swear on this podcast? Hell yes. Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. Uh, how are you today? I'm all right. How are you? I'm feeling in the mood for some History is Sexy. Oh, that's convenient. It is convenient. You planned um, that well. I did plan that well. <laughs> um, I've been working up to this all day. Well, that, that sounds disgusting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we have an extra person today. We have Dr. James Harland. Hello. Hi. Hello. James, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. So I am a historian and archaeologist. I work more broadly on cultural and ethnic identity at the, in the late Roman period. Uh, my thesis, my doctoral thesis, which I completed last year, concerned um, the study of ethnic identity by archaeologists from the sort of late 20th century to the present day. And I looked at how they frame questions about investigating that kind of thing from material culture. But more broadly, I'm interested in the late Roman period, what we sometimes call the transformation of the Roman world, the end of the Roman Empire, barbarian migrations, all of that fun, often controversial stuff. It is good fun stuff. It's not very sexy, to be fair, but we no, make it sexy. It's angry um... more than sexy, I'd often say. <laughs> It's often very racist, which is fun too. Yes, that's um, kind of some of the stuff I was trying to grapple with in when this the thing yeah. I look at is kind of it's something I'm quite interested in is the why are the underpinnings of our field so racist and what can we do about <laughs> it? It's yeah. Yeah. So the reason that we have James is because our question this week is from Jack Dewars and it is uh, basically it is I am fascinated by the transition period after the Romans left Britain, the early in extreme scare quotes, dark ages the extent to which Romanized Britons kept up Roman life after the empire left, how they coped with what must have been a devastating collapse. So we have reframed that slightly into was the was the end of Roman Britain a devastating collapse into horror and famine and <laughs> weeping and gnashing of teeth? Yeah. <laughs> uh, a Hieronymus Bosch painting come to life. Um, or was it something a bit more complicated than that? And So it wasn't basically it, like the end of the world's end? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where they lock themselves yeah, into the a end? pub. and Yeah. 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 Uh, it's just four people in, in a pub, like, weeping. Um, <laughs> Or was it more complicated? Now, the thing is that technically my PhD was on this period, but I explicitly did not include Roman Britain and the, and Britain in general because Britain is really weird and difficult and there's no written sources really, or there's two written sources, and I'm very much a textual historian and archaeology scares and appalls me. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, so I got a... A historian archaeologist to come in, which is as close to archaeology as I'm willing to go. <laughs> um, I like having fingernails too much and I don't like looking at pots. But James is here to help us answer this question because I figure that if anyone can answer it, it's James because he worked with a person who is simultaneously an academic hero and one of the most terrifying people I've ever met, Guy Halsall, who is a genius and also probably the one of the most, I would say, controversial figures in our field. 
every statement he that? every statement he makes is provocative and it's often for good reason so is, yes. is i think what i would say about guys <laughs> okay one of the most provocative people in our field but yeah definitely one of the most interesting people and so rather than get someone who would give us a boring answer we found someone who'll give us a sexy answer and james is definitely that person so james can you give us a kind of just as a grounding a kind of brief overview of what's going on like what is the end of roman britain is it wars is it terrible famines is it like what's going on it depends on who you ask actually because if you ask one of those very few sources that you were alluding to a moment ago what it was our friend he's called gildas and we're not quite sure what that name means it could be gothic it could be something else no one's ever quite sure where he's writing either could be in wales could be in scotland who knows but gildas he does depict it very much as horrendous wars and famines and sort of mass death and all of that fun stuff And i'm going to just quote from him very briefly oh, please do just to kind of give you the kind of impression he gives you of what's going on and he sort of says no sooner were they gone, and when Gildas says they're gone, he means the Romans. And what he means by that is a complex question that we can get into later because it's not as straightforward as it sounds. But when no sooner are the Romans gone, then the Picts and Scots, like worms, differing from one another in manners, <laughs> but inspired with the same kind of eagerness for blood and all of this nasty stuff about how evil and nasty they are. They heard of the departure of Obviously. our friends, and so they seized with greater boldness. And so then... There's all these tales about like the Picts and the Scots like throwing like grappling hooks at Hadrian's wall and pulling unsuspecting <laughs> useless Britons off and slaughtering them in like kind of blood loads and all the Britons flee into the hills and then some of them get into boats and sail away and like write songs saying the barbarians drive us to the sea and all of this very unhappy stuff and it's there's all of this tale of famine and pestilence and because the Romans have left and it's a disaster. That's what Gildas no. tells us. <laughs> but the only thing holding the Britons back from just falling on the floor and stabbing themselves. Like, yeah, yeah. So this, with this, a Roman governor. <laughs> yeah, and so and there's all these tales he gives us of kind of the Romans like suddenly coming and teaching Britons to be useless, not to be useless and how to hold those weapons <laughs> and it doesn't work very well. But um that's the narrative we have from the textual sources and once upon a time that was taken quite seriously. But for a long time, scholars have been quite sceptical about this narrative, and there's a variety of reasons why that is the case. And one of them is I actually show my students whenever I teach them on Gildas. I bring in a hard copy of the text. It's Michael Winterbottom's edition. It's lovely. And I take out the pages which actually concern the narrative about the end of Roman Britain. And I just kind of hold them up and let the book hang with me holding the pages. And what you have is maybe like one thirtieth of the total text, <laughs> if that, is the entire narrative about the end of Roman Britain. Because what Gildas's text actually is, is a rant. It's, yep. it's a sermon, to be precise. And he's having a go at kind of the contemporaries of his day saying, you're all... Do we swear on this podcast? Am I allowed to? Okay, lovely. Right, and he's sort of saying, you're all, you're all really shit Christians. Sort it the fuck out, is more or less what he's saying. And he spends essentially a good... I don't know. He spend, I wouldn't want to time it, but he spends pages and pages and pages <laughs> ranting at his contemporaries saying, sort it out, and quotes reams and reams of Bible quotes. And I always picture him as a sort of Ian Paisley-like figure, kind of ranting <laughs> from his podium, sort of about all of these evil people. And that's what his text is about, really. And this he's is a, writing... an interesting thing that I think has come up a few times where um, I think when you start approaching history, you look at 
old texts and you're like, this is the truth. This is an actual account of the facts of the era. And you forget the fact that it's written down by a human person with their own agenda and a lot of emotions. And Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And particular textual goals that aren't the same as what we think these goals are. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think I've talked before about how, like, we go back and go, oh, well, they wrote it at the time. So this must be capital T truth without mm-hmm. being like... And not often enough do people think, what does truth mean in this context? Because mm-hmm. he's telling, uh, he's telling us a, a truth about a spiritual history of the world in which the Romans, are coll- like everything is collapsing because no one's being a good enough Christian. <laughs> and because uh, there's a guy called Salvian, a contem- broad contemporary in Gaul, who wangs on about the same thing and just goes around telling everybody that the reason that barbarians are coming is because the Romans are shit Christians and they keep getting divorced. And if they'd stop doing that, then um, and the reason that the Vandals are doing so well, because he really loves the Vandals for some reason, is that um, is that they're good. They're good people, even though they don't like worship explicitly they're living christian lives accidentally and that's why god is rewarding (laughs) exactly and that's i mean we call that eschatology of course which is like kind of god's divine plan unfolding itself and and someone showing that through text and so in gildas's case he's also writing a good 100 years later and the purpose is entirely the end of roman britain is entirely a setup for all of that so I guess this is just a long, a long roundabout way of saying we really shouldn't trust that narrative in, it, in, it, in its <laughs> details. It's, it's broad brush strokes we can kind of take some meaning from. We know that the, whoever it is that are the authorities in Britain recruit some people called the Saxons eventually from overseas and they come and settle and something happens there that leads to a change in political identity in Britain. But whether that means the whole thing is a mass pillaging, burning catastrophe, as you, as you were asking earlier, I think things are more complicated than that. <laughs> it's always a bit more complicated. I think generally, yeah, that's how is this episode 16? Yeah. Like, this is episode 16. I think apart from the quick questions, everything has come down to, well, yes and no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and as it turns out, it's quite complicated. And really, what is history? Uh, um, which is why I was so great, obviously, and sexy. <laughs> only the simple questions here. Only the... Only you know, the... <laughs> Um, oh yeah, only the only the easiest, most straightforward questions we get. <laughs> okay, so everything that I know basically hits certain beats and is vaguely confused because I say I avoided Roman Britain because it bores me, and I avoided post-Roman Britain or kind of sub-Roman Britain or whatever you want to call it, uh, post-Imperial Britain. Um, I tend because... to yeah, the terminology is another terminology in this era is a nightmare and is because if you say post-roman then you're implying that the that there's nothing roman there mm. anymore if you're saying sub-roman then you're not just saying there's nothing roman anymore but there's nothing roman and it's shit uh, <laughs> <laughs> i quite i i always get went with post-imperial which i think is guys actually because yes. it is like it removes the like the imperial structures of the empire are not explicitly there anymore, but that doesn't mean that there weren't Roman things there or people identifying as Roman or that there wasn't a whole kind of, that it wasn't a lot more complicated than that. Applies <laughs> to the same reasons, which is, you know, not surprising given I was, you know, I studied under, <laughs> under, under my household. But um, that actually gives us a neat opportunity to segue into what maybe actually is going on and what precisely this post-imperial Britain means. 
So to kind of give context, we're in, as, as you well know, Emma, we're in quite a turbulent point in the Western Empire's history as we yes. turn into the kind of the late 4th, early 5th centuries. And one of the things that you especially see is increasing fractures between um, the kind of fragments of relationships between um, Gallic and Italian factions, especially of the senatorial aristocracy, and you begin to see increased unrest and competition for the imperial throne in this period. Um, yeah. And there's a whole variety of possible... Sorry, you are going to say something there. No, the, this is the point where we get just a lot of... We've got like six emperors in one go and the Tetrarchy and the Imperial, like there's no imperial centre anymore and everything is getting very wobbly at the top, which makes everything very wobbly at the bottom as well. <laughs> yes, in, indeed. But I mean, so obviously we have the third century crisis and the Tetrarchy and all of that fun stuff. But then you do see a degree of stabilisation again, of course, under, you know, after yeah. Diocletian and the Constantinian dynasty and then eventually moving into kind of, you know, the House of Theodosius. But then in the later fourth century you begin to see a bit of kind of unrest again and especially in the northwest and there's a variety of reasons that are proposed for this but one that i find most compelling is that the imperial court moves from well first it moves from trier to it moves from trier in kind of gaul to milan and that's when you begin to increasingly see um and that happens in the late fourth century and you begin to see kind of gallic factions getting quite upset and you also see a pair of British usurpers suddenly appear at moments of particular weakness. It's when you have quite young emperors or you have, there have recently been major defeats inflicted upon, um, upon those young emperors. So we see a British usurper in the late 4th century called Magnus Maximus, which is a great name. It's, yes, it sounds it's like, like a name that someone made up for a film. Like <laughs> um, big, like big biggest. Big biggest. My my some of my students eventually took to calling him Top Lad, Big Lamb. <laughs> um, yeah, it's Very, a good it's a good name. It does sound like um, a made up name. <laughs> I mean, he, he so he was actually from Spain, but he was a military commander in Britain at the time, um, and this is. Uh, in when kind of Gretchen is ruling in the West. And so it's not that long, maybe 10 years-ish after sort of poor Gretchen's brother has been killed at the Battle of Adrianople by a big old army of Goths, which takes us into, you know, a whole other set of questions and narratives that we can avoid <laughs> for the time well, being. We're not looking but, at them at the moment. But, um, <laughs> but just, so, uh, just to clarify, when we say Goths, we mean like from Titus Andronicus, right? <laughs> No, the ones with the eyeliner. Yes, uh, those the ones. Sisters of Mercy. Um, uh, you do. Uh, uh, visit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> These um, are my touch yeah. points. See, this is this is this whole problem again with when you're talking about like Goths and Ostrogoths. Is like the easy thing to say is like the classic narrative would be, oh, you they're a Germanic tribe and they come and piss off the Romans. Uh, but then. <laughs> then I feel bad about saying that because it's not really true and it is a million times more complicated than that and I'll lie awake at night thinking that I'm misleading people into thinking that barbarians are a real thing. <laughs> and that makes me feel bad. <laughs> so, yeah, there's all of that, that stuff going on with these Goths who have a short while earlier kind of rampaged around the Balkans a bit and eventually kind of find themselves settled in kind of the Western Empire. And things get complicated later on, but we can avoid that for the time being. 
But mm -hmm. so Magnus Maximus um, in the late 380s, because unhappiness with these various emperors seems to kind of come to a head. And so Magnus Maximus decides to take an army from Britain. He sort of had enough of this, all this instability. And he takes an army and that seems to catch Gratian off guard. And as um, Gratian is fleeing to Italy to try and get away from Magnus Maximus's armies, he gets assassinated, and Magnus Maximus <laughs> rapidly conquers Gaul and Spain. And then there's a bit of peace for a while, until eventually Magnus Maximus tries his luck. He um, invades, he actually then tries to invade Italy, which forces um, Gratian's brother Valentinian II to retreat, to run away to Constantinople, which is where kind of Theodosius, who's our famous emperor of the Theodosian dynasty, is um, emperor in the east. Because, of course, in this period, there are multiple emperors of different parts of the <laughs> empire, as, as you well know, Emma. Yeah, bastards. <laughs> <laughs> but Theodosius, that, that, that kind of rather pisses Theodosius off and he comes and eventually kicks Magnus Maximus's ass. But what this has to do with Britain is that so we have this one usurper Magnus Maximus and then we later get another usurper called Constantine III who comes a bit later but Gildas doesn't actually seem to be aware Constantine III exists Gildas kind of in his narrative just writes about the Magnus Maximus taking his army invading Gaul and from that point he says Britain is entirely stripped of all its young men its troops so Gildas seems to think that's when Roman Britain ends not quite but that's when we begin to see the <laughs> process of Roman Britain coming to an end, when you see with the, the process of this um, usurper and then another usurper later, Constantine, that's when you begin to see Roman Britain come to sort of an end. And the reason for that is, so when we get to this, all right, I'll skip to our next usurper, um, who's, a, <laughs> who's a chap called Constantine the Third. The Third is very much heavily in quote marks because we've had two legitimate Constantines before this, you know, the famous one who sees a cross in the sky and then uh, his son, Constantine the Third is made emperor in AD sort of 406. And uh, so this is pretty much exactly 100 years after Constantine. The, you know, the Constantine is made the emperor. Constant the big Constantine. Yeah, big Constantine. And uh, <laughs> who's based where I live, actually, and who, you know, was made emperor initially in the city of York. Um, oh, really? Yes, indeed. Uh, he's got, we've got a big modern statue dedicated to him just outside York Minster, <laughs> precisely on that basis. This is a thing with British ancient history is you just have to take what you can get. Like we've got Boudicca, <laughs> a woman we know nothing about, and this guy. <laughs> and they're all very proud of Constantine in your place. We're all very proud of him. Interestingly, it seems that in the Anglo-Saxon period, like Constantine's like connection to the city of York was barely known in the city. But that's, uh, that's it's another been thing altogether. Not, yeah, not quite sure why. But anyway, so this chap I'm talking about is a different Constantine. He's called Constantine the, quote, third, unquote. And so in AD yep. 406, there, well, there are two other emperors. No, wait, let me rephrase that. There are, there are <laughs> See, this is exactly the problem with this period of history. Is there's so much going on. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I've just mentioned that chap Theodosius who kicked Magnus Maximus's ass. Well, yep. after Theodosius dies, he leaves um, his sons in command of both the Western and the Eastern empires. And they're both very young. So he leaves his son Honorius in charge in the West. And Honorius is like... Oh, I can't remember exactly, but he's something like ten years old Christ at this right. point. Yeah, <laughs> and then so when he's when he's left in charge, and then so so by the time you reach uh, Constantine the third day, which is about yeah, so he's, he must be about twenty by the time Constantine the third's rebellion takes place. I will freely admit to not precisely remembering his age, but it's around. He's very young, is my point. 
Yeah. And too young to be protecting yeah. an empire. And so what <laughs> that means is margin. And so yeah. what, what that means is the people who are in charge of the empire at this point are all kind of like these military commanders who often have a bit of barbarian heritage. So in Honorius's case, this is a bloke called Stilicho. Um, but um, what that means is I mentioned earlier that divide between the Gallic and the Italian senatorial factions. The reason yep. that divide is there is because access to the emperor depends entirely on these sort of webs of patronage that you're bound into. So it's basically, you can think of it as like the modern British class system where who you know and which school you went to kind of often determines your life chances in ways that are really quite sickening and appalling. But um, similar, similar then. But ultimately, your access to the emperor is what determines kind of your power. So if you have a young emperor who's a bit useless and can't actually give you those things and you're dependent on these military commanders instead, you've got a recipe for unrest. And that particularly seems to have happened with Honorius around AD 4 or 6. So first you, you see kind of three rebellions in rapid succession, or at least Britain declares three different people emperor straight after the other. But two of them die pretty much as are killed by someone, assassinated pretty much as soon as they are declared emperor. But then eventually they settle on Constantine. And one of our lovely sources, Erosius, tells us that Constantine is made emperor pretty much entirely based upon his name. He's like, you're called Constantine, you'll do... They just find the nearest guy with a kingly sounding name. (laughs) Something like that, yeah. So... You... You, sir, you'll do. <laughs> so, Constantine. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've not got much going for me, but I have got the same name as Constantine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. So, so Constantine also has a crack in invading Gaul, and he does all right for a little while as well, and he takes all the British troops with him against seemingly. And Gildas seems to, like, combine this event with Magnus Maximus's invasion and get the two confused. But anyway, what this really matters for, for our purposes, is that... The army is completely removed from Britain, and Britain, after that, really ceases to be part of the Roman Empire. There's no kind of... Some people think there might be an active declaration of independence based upon a throwaway reference in Zosimus. Some people think um, that Honorius might grant independence to Britain based upon a a kind of a, a legal code he proclaims, but that's all contentious as hell. What really happens is the British army invades Gaul, It never really comes back, and Britain just ceases to be part of the Roman Empire for whatever reason. They never get around to kind of reintegrating it into the imperial structure. And that's what brings about this kind of collapse. So from my undergraduate, Simon Esmond Cleary, who used to be like the name in Roman Britain and post-Roman Britain, his thing was always that it was like that there is a specific point at which Roman Britain stops being Roman Britain. And that's the point in 411 where nobody bothers to put any administration back in. Uh, Like some terms expire and just no one ever bothers to reappoint some people. And then the army's gone for a wander and never come home. Yeah, the opposite of the Liechtenstein army. These are those complicated textual allusions that I kind of made reference to just a moment yeah. ago. So there's so part of that is you've got Zosimus, who um, yeah. who's a, actually a sixth-century Greek historian. He's writing probably like somewhere in Constantinople, so he doesn't necessarily know what's going on with the great deal of detail about a hundred years later. Again, but yeah. what he tells us is that the British, kind of basically the British sort of authorities or whatever over kind of overthrow the administrators, and whether that means just the administrators of Constantine III after he eventually gets his ass kicked by the legitimate government, or whether yeah. whether that means they kind of throw off the shackles of Roman oppression, as you might think of it, I, which I don't think is what's going on, but you could... <laughs> which of those things it is, 
it's not quite clear. And the other administrative question is this text called the Rescriptive Honorius, which is this yes. text that Honorius writes to Britain, where he sort of, well, no, it, this is the question, does he write it to Britain? But traditionally, <laughs> it was all, all right. The best way to think of this is pop histories, or, or anything you see in like English heritage or a documentary or whatever, will always say that the emperor wrote to the Britain because they needed to withdraw the legions to defend Rome or whatever you call it, to tell Britain to look to its own defences. That, yeah. That's a text called the Rescriptive Honorius. Now, the problem with it is it might not actually refer to Britain at all. It, it <laughs> that's might. That's helpful. Yeah, it might. It might, but it might not. <laughs> I mean, that's about it's, average for this period. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, so, so what we're dealing with is we're dealing with um, manuscripts that have been handed down to us Centuries later, most of the manuscripts we're dealing with are actually um, either Carolingian, so in the reign of Charlemagne, who's, you know, a, a kind of Frankish emperor from the uh, 8th century, or they're even later. So this text actually comes from a 10th century manuscript. So we're dealing with something, you know, 500 years later. Um, mm-hmm. So a 10th century manuscript of a 6th century text describing <laughs> events in the 5th century. Yep. Think about when we try and, you know, copy notes from a lecture or what have you. <laughs> How accurate are we always in what we... So, yeah. Yeah. So there's been a lot of arguments that have suggested that actually what we find written here because of corruption in the text might refer to Britium in the south of Italy. Which, <laughs> which, which would actually make a lot more sense in this text because it comes right in the middle of a description of Alaric the Goth's invasions of Italy. So that would make a lot more sense. So this one textual reference we have to the end of Roman authority over Britain might might not refer to Britain at all. So <laughs> it, it, yeah. it does seem to make more sense that the text wouldn't go and then Alaric the Goth came and then this was happening in Italy and then that happened in Italy and then Britain and then back to Italy. Um <laughs> I mean, having actually having said that, having read a lot of texts from the sixth century, it d- it's not unlikely that they would suddenly veer off on some kind of well. <laughs> seventeen chapters, but uh, and then come back to what they were talking about previously. But it doesn't happen all the time. <laughs> no, it, it's you could read the text either way on this one, but it's. Yeah. I suppose the point here is kind of everything is uncertain, everything is unclear. We can't build a. <laughs> coherent, reliable picture of what happens in a, from an administrative perspective to Britain in this period. But what we do know yeah. is the army disappears. Goodbye. And Britain ceases to be tied into the empire's wider administrative structures, whether intentionally or just by accident. I think it's kind of like Brexit in that they kind of view you that know, like just sort of it's something that no one's quite thinking about what they're doing and then it happens and everyone realises the consequences of that only after it's happened, as we're going to find out in a year's time. <laughs> but Yeah, but probably with less talking about it. <laughs> yes. Um... Or at least with fewer <laughs> newspaper columnists writing ill-informed nonsense about it. <laughs> just bishops instead. It's going to be good fun. It's really nice. <laughs> um... It's going to be good fun for historians in 100 years. Oh, yeah. Imagine trying to piece apart this text. Anyway. Honestly, a little bit, though, wouldn't you want to be, like, maybe 150 years from now, a historian, like, writing, a, like, the definitive book on what the fuck was Brexit? You'd have to wade through so many tweets. <laughs> yes. But it would be so good. Like, you could write such a good, like, cultural history of Brexit and a political history of Brexit. Like, so got careers there. Careers are being made in the future. <laughs> I think it's very optimistic to assume the planet's still going to be in sufficiently one piece to, <laughs> you know. That is also very fair. 
That is fair. I'm I'm trying not to think about the inevitable water wars because I mention them every episode and then it's beginning to depress me. <laughs> yeah. If you were going to go down the like shit newspaper columnist, then 411 is the original Brexit, is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. And since we've now moved <laughs> since since we've now moved on to the um, you know, the apocalyptic post-Brexit kind of scenario discussions and water wars. <laughs> Yes. That that offers us maybe quite a neat segue into what exactly this removal of Britain from the empire means. And this is where we yeah, get to what your does it uh, look like? your uh, your good old former lecturer Simon Esmond Cleary, who yes, wrote a... he was very sad about it <laughs> <laughs> about Brexit or about um, the end of Britain. I mean, I don't Britain. know how he feels about Brexit actually. I've not spoken to him in a couple of years, but he felt that the he was very clear on how he felt about the end of Roman Britain, which is that he felt that it was some kind of that it was a terrible, catastrophic, brutal, very sudden collapse that it was nasty, brutish and short. Yeah, that's, that's a quote from his book, isn't it? The End of Roman it Britain. Is. Um, so he, what he bases that upon is... How should we do this? Should I talk about what he based that upon? Should we go through how, how his argument kind of functions? It gets quite ep- economic, I'm afraid. And I don't know if that's... Yeah, I know. I know. Um, oh, his, everyone loves talking I mean, about economics. No one loves... This is exactly why I never took any of his courses. Um... <laughs> But that is kind of like because we've got no written sources, we end up looking at the archaeology for a lot of it. And then you end up into really dense discussions about like, oh, well, this kind of pottery isn't being made anymore. And this is what the coins look like. And if we look over here, then we see this. And if we look over there, then we see that this villa wasn't lived in. And it all gets a bit dense. And like there's a lot of description of things and then them going... And that proves that everything was shit. Well, we're, we're, uh, left, with a bit, we're left with a bit of an enigma because we get precisely the evidence which we used to tell us about all this stuff. Also kind of, we lead that, that the evidence kind of functions both as analytical method and thing to which the analysis is applied. And really what I'm talking about here is coins because Britain yeah. is also a bit of a pain in the 5th century because the 5th century is is terrible for radiocarbon dating. And we speak to someone, how we ask them, how do you date an archaeological find? You either use a coin or you radiocarbon date it. Now, when Britain ceases to be part of the empire in the early 5th century, the coin supply dries up. So the latest coins you have are around AD 402, kind of late, late stage kind of House of Theodosius coins. So coin supply dries up and you also see shortly after this large scale industrial pottery, kind of villa culture, mosaics, all of that stuff. Like mass urbanism kind of, you know, with lovely ceramics that are imported from North Africa and all of the stuff that when you think of what you, when you think of a typical Roman, what do you think of? You think of all that. Yeah, all of you that. think of a man floating around in a sandal, um, <laughs> gazing at a mosaic and drinking the wine out of a nice silver goblet. <laughs> Maybe, exactly. Maybe you, driving a chariot, casually. And, and even, okay, we're talking about Beating elites Beating a slave. And <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking about elites there, but even... Yes, even, even, but that is, you know... But even your agricultural, ordinary agricultural labourer, 90% of the population of the empire are agricultural labourers, would have, through the empire, had access to kind of relatively high quality pottery and that kind of thing. And unless you think otherwise, this is not like me waxing lyrical in favour of empires which I think you know, <laughs> terrible things that need to be dismantled from the ground, every single one, including the you know, modern neo-imperial powers. But that aside, all of that 
appears to vanish. And it appears to vanish very rapidly. But appears is is the operative word here. Because how are we dating all of this stuff? Yes. With the coins that also disappear. So it's very, very difficult to know precisely when kind of some of the pots cease to be found in use. We have evidence for um, some of these coins, um, these kind of AD402 coins and what have you. You begin to see copies of them perhaps circulating. So it might be that the coin supply and some of these items continue to be circulating for a few decades, maybe after everything in terms of our dating methods appears to halt. And that's what... So it ends up being kind of a circular argument. Like, Yeah, exactly. We've got no coins, so we can't date it, but it doesn't seem to be being used because we've got no coins that we can date it with, so... <laughs> that, that you've hit exactly upon the problem. And that makes Britain a bit of an enigma for this reason. And so one of the problems is that when we tend like try to analyze what happens to Britain and we describe collapse and let's not beat around the bush urbanism ceases to exist high quality pottery industries do gradually disappear perhaps some quite rapidly there is certainly something that happens that has quite a serious effect on the British economy to go back to that Brexit analogy again what what, <laughs> yeah. what, what happens if, if you know we're lucky enough for the planet to continue to exist and for historians to be writing about it in a hundred years time some of them would doubtless describe Brexit as a kind of substantial readjustment of the British economy, which is what some scholars like James Gerrard now think we should describe the end of Roman Britain as, rather than a sudden collapse. But yeah. that necess- doesn't mean that it wouldn't have been quite nasty and unpleasant for those experiencing it as it happened. And distressing. I think the thing that it is, is like without putting any kind of collapsing judgment or, you know, dark ages judgment on it, it is a significant change from what it was even 50 years before. Like it is, there is a quite sudden in terms of big historical shifts, like change in what life looks like in Britain for a lot of people from this urban culture that is linked very easily to the rest of the world to one that is less connected and less urban. And whether that is distressing or not is, you know, up to anyone to decide, I guess. It sounds quite... I mean, I live in a nice urban world where I can get on a plane and go somewhere and I have a passport that lets me go places. So I that sounds crap to me, the idea of, ooh, agriculture. <laughs> It's, it's a question of scale and speed and actually who you ask. So it's a question of did this happen within the space of three years after the army had been removed or did this happen, you know, over a course of 30 years? I think and- it would be a bit like if it happens in three years, that would be wild. Like for 400 years of increasing and relatively stable Roman urbanisation and then the army leaves and everyone just lies down on the floor and goes, <laughs> Ugh! <laughs> it just That suggests to me, one, a vision of Roman Britain in which all the British people who weren't the army and like an imported governor were constantly just waiting for them to leave so they could get back to living in mud. And... <laughs> Like and just like hanging around, telling their children one day these mosaics will all be gone. <laughs> well, it, it's funny, you know. I remember once when I was a very naive master's student and I was studying this period for the first time, and I, I actually it was in a class with Guy Housel, and I said to him, "But what happened to you know all the kind of Celtic Britons after you know after the Roman Empire ceased to rule in Britain?" And Guy sort of said, "They didn't just suddenly come out from hiding behind the bushes, you know." Surprise, motherfucker! Yeah. This has been. They're all in a Britain, you know, Britain had been part of the empire for, you know, a good 400 years. 
by this point. So this readjustment was something that people experienced as Romans having to rethink what Romanness yeah. meant for them. But, but but when we speak of that, it's then a question again of who will be asking you. So yeah, so for the kind of elites who are used to their lovely, luxurious villa lifestyles in these urban centres where they can go to kind of, um, you know, write their poetry and sort of swan about, <laughs> maybe this was all a bit unpleasant. But the question is, what impact, would, what would this have meant for your ordinary agricultural labourer who is kind of 90% of the British population? And who's still um, got yeah. just a farm to, to, to till. And yeah, it, well, exactly. But what happens there? Because one of the issues with people studying this is precisely because um, that high status elite culture is so visible because it's made out of stone or yeah. it's marble or it's mosaics or it's metal and coins. It all survives in the ground quite well. Yeah. Leather, leather and, and, and sort of grain and bread and that stuff doesn't really tend to survive in ground so well for a thousand years. So we don't tend to dig that stuff up and know what's going on with that side of the economy which is the vast majority of what's going on with the British economy but some people have tried to rethink what's going on with this and so James Gerrard in this wonderful book from 2013 called uh, The Ruin of Roman Britain he tries to look at what is going on based on his best guesstimates from models of what we can <laughs> estimate about Roman kind of agricultural productivity he tries to look at what does happen to that in the 5th century in Britain and what he seems to find is basically a, a readjustment of sort of supply and demand. So what happens is you see a gradual contraction of agricultural production, but not in kind of terms of collapse, more because, well, essentially what's going on in Britain is that it, it's in the Roman period, it is producing far more grain than is necessary to keep the population fed. And that's because it's shipping that grain to the army who are on the Rhine, um, the Rhine River, um, kind of, which is the main frontier of the empire. Uh, in sort of what is now, it's on the kind of, in now Western Germany and sort of bits of France and the Netherlands and what have you. But Britain is shipping all of its grain to feed the army who are based there. Once Britain ceases to be part of the empire, not much reason for it to need to do that anymore. As how Gerard puts it is he says, you know, once you've got your harvest, there's only so much beer you can brew, only so much bread you can make before it starts kind of rotting away. So clearly not made some of those top lads. So, <laughs> so, so you see a mass contraction of production, but that's not the same thing as, you know, a sudden collapse, which affects people's material circumstances. Some people have tried to claim that the ordinary, yeah. your ordinary, less used peasant for want of a better word, your average peasant might have actually had a slightly improved lot in life because they would have had to have worked less hard and they'd have had more access to food. And there is some evidence from some archaeological work on sort of cemetery excavations to suggest that people after the collapse of the empire in Britain might have lived a bit longer. They might have, they had fewer kind of back problems. They were slightly <laughs> better fed. So, so they basically means that as when they're part of the empire they're kind of like an imperial grain sweatshop and then once they don't have to be an imperial grain sweatshop they can just start making stuff for themselves basically it's, i mean that's co oh god that makes it sound like liam fox's depiction of brexit doesn't it it's the, <laughs> no longer having it does. to i'm never i'm not saying that uh, the eu is an imperial <laughs> force or that uk is currently a now brexit that we've thrown off of the shackles of brussels we can begin to make our own trade links and finally we can prosperous. throw off all those worker protections that the roman empire definitely had well surely there is a difference just in the fact that there's no getting away from being part of a global economy now we're connected to the world and we can't get away from it whereas at this point in history if you're not part of an empire and you're not contributing to that empire with what you produce 
then you go back to just contributing to your small localized community uh, because that's that's all you need and, and they're physically right there. But with Brexit, we're, we're not going to be able to... You, you can't reverse globalisation, is what I'm saying. I think. No. <laughs> it, no, it, it, and I think that the benefits of the EU are more felt in everyday life than the benefits of the Roman Empire necessarily. Even in just if you're, if you're average farmer Jeff and you're you know growing a bunch <laughs> of wheat and a huge amount of that is for the troops over uh, over in, on the continent then you'll get obviously getting a much bigger income than that you would get if you're just producing for your community but you also have to just spend that on keeping on growing wheat. So it kind of is like maybe I don't know much about economics, but it feels like <laughs> that is well, self-supporting labor. Whereas, so once it's removed, maybe your life doesn't change anymore because your income goes down, but your farming requirements also go down a corresponding amount. Yeah, the offset of that is that when you have the Roman Empire, you have lots more like fancy French pots and nice French wines <laughs> yeah. and exciting things from Constantinople that are available for you to buy. So what happens is people have less available. money, but they also have nothing to buy anymore. Yeah, it becomes like the opposite <laughs> of like the collapse of a communist government. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it, it is important <laughs> to sort of emphasise here, actually, that those... So the, the relationship that most of these people have and the things they're producing, these aren't people who, you know sell their grain and get money and go to the market and buy yeah. some nice things. Some of them might be, but the vast majority are, they're in a relationship with a lord who owns that land and That's they right. are expected to give that grain as a form of taxation to that lord. So right. it's, and that, and that then produces questions actually that this readjustment of the economy that might happen instead, does it actually benefit these labourers? And some, some, you know, some of the archaeological evidence suggests in some instances maybe, but that's all quite circumstantial evidence. James Gerrard thinks that he kind of talks about landlords would have kind of leached jackal-like off the kind of what was left of the surplus. And this doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's lot improves. It's, it's all a bit yeah. unclear, really, as with they, most things. There is something about this period that brings out the rhetorician in a lot of historians and archaeologists all of a sudden they're talking about jackals and worms <laughs> in a way that if they're talking no one talks about this like this when you're talking about fucking clovis or something <laughs> in gaul everyone's really boring and stayed when they're talking about it and then all of a sudden you get to britain if someone had told me that there was all these people about talking about jackals and worms and i would have been more into it <laughs> i'm very easily persuaded i know it's all the archaeology i still would have been off of it but um i'm not spending my time hoking about gazing at bloody crematoriums and <laughs> cemeteries and trying to decide and having to engage in conversations because this is what your PhD was sort of on if I'm right James that's that there's a lot of conversations about like does this grave good mean that this person is a Anglo-Saxon or a Saxon or a Goth or a British person or something else and you're like <laughs> that, that's exactly right yeah so <laughs> That's like the, a huge amount of conversations about post-Roman Britain are about what ethnicity in inverted commas everybody is. So obviously we've spoken about this kind of, was this landscape that we see in the aftermath of the end of Roman Britain, this apocalyptic wasteland, or was it, as some people have argued, a kind of rosy communist utopia, or was it... But so then the, the question... Is it more complicated than Well, well you, you've, you've prefigured my answer Tell there. Us, but... but but one of the questions that follows with this is, okay, so what is the who are the people that come next? And you do begin to see in the fifth century, 
we do begin to see new forms of material culture begin to appear, and some of them almost definitely come from across the North Sea, in uh, bits of northern Germany and Scandinavia. And Gildas, in part of that lovely story he's telling us about, where he's telling us all how to not be shit Christians, <laughs> he also tells us that the British authorities, because they're being attacked by these Picts and Scots, who Scots are actually from Ireland, so that let's, 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 don't yes. confuse them for the Scottish there, but... To defend these folk, the British authorities hire the Saxons, who are these people from over the sea. And the Saxons, a few of them come over in their boats and they think, yeah, the picking's good, the pay's nice, these people seem a bit weak and useless. So eventually <laughs> they sort of think, oh, well, why, why are we bothering to fight for them when we can just kind of take what they have? And, and therefore they do. And that's the story Gildas <laughs> tells us and then the Saxons in his narrative rapidly conquer everything. And of course, yes. or at least everything kind of sort of in the southeast. And because everyone has laid down and gone, oh, no, I'm not. I just can't be bothered. They they just walk in and kill everybody. <laughs> and take everything. Yeah, they're so they're kind that's of. That's the general like that's the pop narrative of Anglos. <laughs> it is, and they're they're big bad nasty barbarians who come and take everything away. And the, the kernel of this story is true. The Empire recruits Saxons from over the sea, and they are settled, and eventually we begin to see a reorientation of political frameworks that in some way relate to that. The question, though, is how do we evidence it? How do we identify its scale? What does this imply for the cultural identities of ordinary people living in Britain? Who, What would they have thought of themselves as? And well, this is where we get into the kind of nasty racist origins of our field. What does this mean for kind of how does that relate to biological kind of categories and how does that relate to the population of Britain today? Amanda, they people like talking about biological categories. Yep, it's it's pretty pretty horrendous. But so it's pretty genicky. But well, I mean I'm not exaggerating when I say that the study of these questions is literally underpinned the Nazis. So um yes, the way the way we did an episode on that. Oh did you? So you did you did you did Cossiner and all of that lovely stuff. Yeah a bit we kind of touched on that the their obsession with um Germanic identity Germanic. and all of that. Yeah, yeah descendants of they... ice gods and yeah, it's all <laughs> <laughs> yeah good, it was good stuff. They well they certainly didn't that wasn't of course they did love drawing on all of the kind of things like sagas and Wagner and all of that stuff but this also finds itself extended into archaeology and so the way people studied archaeology whatever political persuasion they were in the sort of 19th and 20th century was through a framework called culture history which was originally kind of established by a person called Gustav Kossiner who was a professor of archaeology in Berlin in the late 19th century and this is going to be oversimplifying a reasonably complex <laughs> sort of set of ideas but to put it in short it's, pots what all this is it's fine pots equal people Pots equal people. It's pretty much you can find a set of material cultures distributed somewhere and you can find a cultural group which is also broadly related to a kind of ethnic or quote-unquote racial group. That was how people used to study archaeology up until sort of the mid-20th century. Um, and the Nazis were no exception to this. They used material culture that they thought evidenced Germanic peoples to justify things like their invasions of the Ukraine and Poland and the Crimea, and also to justify, you know, ethnic cleansing in those regions. Because so their argument went, oh, this, this was a Germanic place once, it should be Germanic again. And yep. people in Britain studied the archaeology of the early Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and early Anglo-Saxon migration precisely through 
this framework. They would say, oh, we see this new material culture here. It must have come with these this new people, the Anglo-Saxons, who are also a kind of coherent racial group. Um, really, the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes, who are kind of... Which Bede, who is a sort of 7th and 8th century historian... Sorry, yeah, that's right. Tell, sorry, no way. Yes, a 7th and 8th century historian <laughs> tell, tells us... So Bede tells us... Um, and he kind of takes Gildas' narrative and updates it a little bit and tells us oh, these Saxons came in three tribes, the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes, and they come from these specific regions, which is where they get their names. So historians have, again, taken these texts, talking about events 200 years before them with people who have very different goals to ours... Um, and try to impose them directly upon evidence from the time we're trying to study. And that's a problem. And there's a few reasons why that's a problem. And one of them is that kind of ethnic identity and racial identity don't overlap in neat kind of simple ways that we often like to think they do. Um, and that's a problem that persists to this day. You think of modern racial categories. Um, you can look at things like the horrible white supremacist movements in the United States today and the awful stuff with Charlottesville last year with the neo-Nazis and, and Trump's America. And you see, you know, this is all about kind of people asserting there are these hard and fast boundaries between race and culture and descent. And we belong in that. And our people, in, in this case, white supremacists, should be supreme based upon these X, Y, Z, you know, that's not how things... They based quite a lot on, like, they like to really get involved in medieval and classical studies yes. in order to prove it. Um, and quite a lot of this argument, like, oh, as soon as the Romans left, everything went to shit because the Romans, as white people, were so great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's weird because they kind of, like, they like to seize both narratives because they like kind of the narrative of kind of Roman superiority, but they also, white supremacists also like the Anglo-Saxon narrative of kind of, ah, oh, these heroic yeah. barbarian people who, even though they kind of were sort of primitive, like conquered lots of things and did, you know, and came from the north and sort of overthrew an empire and founded these new pure <laughs> communities. But that that's not how... See, see, it's fun that they like to be both. I was talking to somebody about this with regards to Boudicca, uh, which is that the British like to be both Boudicca, the impressed minority fighting back against, like basically Nazis, um, and also the invading empire destroying everybody and being brilliant. Uh, and they like, depending on the situation, they'll be like, oh, Boudicca, you're amazing, or oh, the Romans, you're so great. Yeah, they like to be whoever was winning at that moment, or whoever, if they were losing, was losing in the most badass and impressive way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like they're like, well, we, you can't invade us now, we're Boudicca, but we can invade you because we're the Romans yeah. now. Uh, don't question it! <laughs> Uh, also with the Romans and the British and the Anglo-Saxons all at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, what, what's fairly ironic about that is it actually it entirely undermines the claims they try to make with this because what it shows is that the selection of narratives and stories about who you are is almost entirely based upon situation and kind yeah. of what you find appeals to you and what helps construct a narrative that makes sense or can persuade particular people in a particular given moment. And that makes you happy at that moment in your yeah. life. And from the mid-20th century on, that's how anthropologists um, who are gradually realising what awful things empires are after the Second World War, some, obviously, not all, um, they begin to... Over 50%. <laughs> they, be they begin to kind of rethink how ethnic identity and race works and begin to realise that they are far more fluid categories that don't neatly overlap with descent or indeed use of material culture 
in quite the way that we've often assumed. And yes, you can certainly find kind of sometimes consistent patterns with race, culture, material, what have you, but not in any way that's consistent or you can predict with like with every single culture or universalize. And actually, Anglo-Saxon archaeologists realized that relatively early on. That's something that Anglo-Saxon archaeology recognizes from the 1970s onwards, really, maybe the 1980s. That is considerably earlier than a lot of places. <laughs> it, it's, it, it was quite impressive. And it, I mean, they were drawing upon a movement in archaeology called post-processualism that began to realize this uh, as yes. well. But so what I was doing, I wasn't actually querying that narrative because I'm querying the kind of narrative that they're grappling with, because they kind of realized these earlier Anglo-Saxon archaeologists realized it first. But then what you begin to see instead is people say, OK, so this material culture that is Anglo-Saxon is used to kind of construct an Anglo-Saxon ethnic identity out of narratives or stories or myths that might be real, might be made up, but either way are being used to construct this boundary of Anglo-Saxon culture. And what I did was kind of systematically went through every attempt at proving that's what this material culture does and couldn't find any evidence for it doing that really. Uh -huh. the, the only thing we have is that it comes from the North Sea, <laughs> which, yeah, okay, is where the Saxons come from. But then we get into the question of what, who do the people who live in that region, how do they identify? Who are they? What do they think of themselves? What are their stories about themselves? And we don't, we don't know. See, this is a problem with having no text. To go back to Gigan, that he has a book called The Worlds of Arthur, which pissed people off. Um, and one of his arguments in that is that there could be little empires going on or like large polities, like little political groups who are very stable and very strong and very successful. But because they, we don't have any written culture about them, we don't know anything. Um, I'm just not over my drink there. Um, <laughs> I became too overexcited. Because um, his basic argument is that like the four kind of fifth, sixth century polities like Clovis in Gaul or Uruk in Italy, if we didn't have Gregory of Tours, basically, or some Lorcos that they left behind, then we wouldn't know anything about them because they didn't leave behind any material culture particularly. And so we don't know if there were things like that happening in Britain that we don't know about. <laughs> it's an unknown unknown. <laughs> because they didn't leave anything written down behind we don't know that they existed basically so but we also don't know that they didn't exist um, yeah that's exactly it and households responding to a particular narrative of how the early anglo-saxon kingdoms formed which has become the most popular one and it, it gets called the fa cup model which is the idea that yeah yeah literally um so stephen stephen bassett who originally publishes the author of the book on which this is based he yeah. describes like the idea of, and again, we're returning to the idea that post-Roman Britain is this apocalyptic wasteland with sort of people mm -hmm. like rummaging through Everything's the scraps. And, and so his idea is that you have these just very small groups of people in like tiny, I don't know, tribes or bands or whatever you want to call them, gradually begin fighting with each other and like knocking out the smaller groups and conquering them and gradually forming larger and larger units, like an FA Cup with knockout rounds and eventually a, a, a champion, which would presumably be... Um, whoever first United States. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All of my knowledge of football country in 1997. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, as you've exactly just described, Housel's not happy with that. No. For the reason that 
when you look he's at goal, he's not happy goal, with anything. To be fair, well, he's not. But when you, but with good reason, <laughs> with good reason in this case, and, and and most cases, because when you look at the archaeology of Gaul or northern, well, northern Gaul in this period, it looks exactly the same. And as you say, we know there are much larger yeah. kingdoms ruled by the Merovingian Franks in precisely the same period. So we have no on the face of it, reason to assume that that's the way early Anglo-Saxon England is structured necessarily. I do wonder if we would have more indications of these larger kingdoms existing if they were to exist, even if it was only from, I don't know, Frankish sources or... That is something I do wonder, but it's a question worth pondering, certainly. Yeah, uh, you do feel like maybe Gregory would have mentioned it, but then but, maybe he wouldn't, like, maybe he had it, no fucking interest in Britain, yeah. which I emphasise. But also maybe yeah. people did mention it, but just those records didn't survive. You know, everything we have is from this part, point in history is pretty fragmented. There's a lot that we just, you know. It's maybe true. Maybe someone wrote screeds about them and then they dropped that scroll <laughs> in a river. It's gone forever. Yeah. It's just another unknown unknown, isn't it? We don't know how much we don't have. Yeah. Uh, like some things you get references or you've got like a fragment in something and you go, if only we had this thing that has been mentioned and then, but maybe something just never got referenced. Yeah. It, it does beg... rubbish if it never got mentioned, but still. <laughs> it does beg the question though of how would these larger kingdoms have seen themselves and identified sort of politically and culturally? if they existed because you do see you see increasing in the east or what we call lowland britain which basically you can kind of draw a line from sort of exeter to i don't know let's say hull or maybe just south of the humber and you can draw a line that pretty much bisects britain diagonally that way and what that will give you is all the kind of low flat kind of really easily arable land in the south and then kind of sort of lots of hilly land and sort of slightly less um, easily kind of arable land in the north. And that's also a massive, that has been a massive cultural divide across the entirety of Britain's history. And in the Roman period, you largely see kind of the highland north bit is a military region. So it's where you have lots of forts and eventually you have things like Hadrian's Wall and various kind of military bases in, um, you know, Wales and what have you. And then in the south, you have lots of urban communities and kind of quite luxurious villas and lots of agricultural land. And you also see different forms of um, agricultural practice. People are largely driving sheep and cattle in the north, whereas in the south, they're growing grain and crops. This is a massive overgeneralization, but this is a kind of general. (laughs) I mean, no, to generalize even further, in the north, you've got the you've got Hadrian's Wall, which you can go and see now and you can go and see all the lovely soldier letters and in the south you can go to Fishbourne Roman Villa um, and those are the take the two big Roman things <laughs> yeah that kind of you could sort of take those as characteristic of the yeah. divide but what about them you also see a huge cultural difference in those two regions so there's much more evidence for kind of Latin speaking in the south and there's much more evidence for kind of people speaking Celtic languages for Celtic quote unquote in the north extreme uh, but, scare quotes for Celtic yeah but then that cultural divide persists after Roman Britain's end and it's that lowland region where largely early Anglo-Saxon material culture begins to appear and the question then is what does that culture mean and what are people signaling when they use it because Yes, it came with people who the Romans called the Saxons and who definitely were barbarians from the North Sea who are invited by the British authorities to be soldiers there. Now, one thing we've not really mentioned in the course of talking about all of this is that inviting barbarians to come and be soldiers is an extremely typical way of um, kind of 
recruiting for the armed forces in this period yeah. in the empire's history. That's what Romans do. Exactly. They were they, <laughs> they were probably recruited by a legal process where which made them they were called federati, literally federate troops. They're given a treaty that make well, I mean, maybe not legally officially a treaty, but kind of that's sort of what yes. it means. They were probably recruited as some form of official troop in the British authorities' eyes. And what does that mean to these these barbarians then? Do they think of themselves as Saxons taking over a Roman region? Or do they think of themselves as Roman soldiers? Yeah. So a lot this of- is a whole big problem with like with the fights with Theodosius and all the rest of it, with the Goths. Like, what are they fighting about? Are they fighting because they think they're Goths or are they fighting because they think they're Roman soldiers and that they want to they want what Roman soldiers have? And I tend to incline towards that latter answer. Yeah. I mean So yeah. Um, they are barbarians. Let's let's not you know beat around the bush. They, did they come wear trousers, and that is disgusting. Ah, so. they did. They did wear trousers, but so did most Roman troops. This is the question, right? <laughs> so you see all of these new barbarian characteristics in that are beginning to appear and be used by the army. But how much of that is, you know, real barbarians doing disgusting things, and how much of that is Roman troops adopting this because they think it looks quite cool? Yeah. It's sort of, it's quite savage, it's ferocious, you can make yourself look kind of angry and mean and a bit like a barbarian. It's like stereotyping, right? Um, yeah. I often think of it as, well, I, a guy once described it as being not too dissimilar to the French Foreign Legion, kind of adopting practices of kind of Bedouin tribesmen in North Africa. But well, the point about that is it's extremely stereotyped. It's not yeah. an accurate depiction of what these people would have been like. Now, in the case of the Saxons... They definitely are barbarians. They've definitely come from across the North Sea outside of the Roman Empire. But the place where they came from, when we look at the material culture in that region before the Saxons migrate, you find evidence for their connections to the Roman Empire. You find cemeteries where they have buried items that are decorated with Roman styles, um, kind of a wonderful kind of style called chip carving, where they... um. I think you might have seen this on kind. You might see this on Roman military metal work, actually, like belts and brooches, where kind of you can imagine if you take a wooden mold and sort of chip away at it, and you get these wonderful geometric patterns that you can then pour your metal into, um, and it creates these really beautiful, like kind of florid patterns and sort of. I'm not very good at describing art. I'm not an art historian, so <laughs> forgive me. Um, but it's so swir- kind of swirling. Yeah, you get swirls and and the artwork that you find in what we this region that we call uh, Germania. Is exactly the same. And that's before the Saxons migrate. And that's partly because many of these people have already served in the Roman army and then gone home. And that's how they show their status, by burying their dead with their old uniforms from the Roman army. Mm-hmm. And then you begin to see copies of this that some people identify as having their own unique Germanic characteristics. But I don't see why that means we need to apply any kind of coherent Germanic cultural identity to it. It's just people working with what they understand power to be. And people in the Barbaricum understand power to be Roman. And that means when people from the North Sea come to Britain, the frameworks they use for describing power are Roman. But So we described how Rome, um, Roman Britain has undergone this massive, horrible economic collapse, lost access to the empire, all of that stuff. Where else are people going to get their means of expressing kind of identity and power from? They're not going to get them from the empire, the real empire, because they don't have access to that anymore. Yeah, and you still see all over the western europe you see people using roman identifiers regardless of whether they had any access to rome whatsoever um, as a way of expressing power because for so long 
Rome has meant power, has meant the ultimate expression of power. And that's just what you go for. Um, it's like the metaphor that you use or the iconography that you use in order to express power. Exactly. Either that or God, it is sometimes just... Sometimes it's both. Yeah, sometimes it's a bit of both. Um, like you, that you, if you want to demonstrate in some way that you are more powerful than everyone else, the thing that you use is some kind of Roman identifier because everybody knows that that means that you are strong and kind of scary. You see some evidence for that going on in so our good friend Gildas again. <laughs> well, well, this is the thing, because, okay, we're talking about these Saxons might be expressing their identity in a very Roman kind of way, and it might have nothing to do with their being Germanic barbarians at all in terms of what they think these things they're doing and the kinds of items that they wear, what they think they mean. But whether someone like Gildas agrees is another matter entirely. And Gildas's Latin is, he's really quite a well-educated chap, is Gildas, and no one's quite sure how or why. But um, <laughs> See, this he's... is another issue, is that, like, once again, you have this person who's, who is clearly in Britain and writing about Britain, and he is clearly very well-educated and writing lovely Latin and His, well, I mean, <laughs> engaging with what is still a like Roman concept. I don't think, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't really consider myself a Latinist, but from what I, <laughs> I, I gather that Gildas's Latin isn't necessarily considered lovely, but uh, yeah. he... Well, to be fair, no Latin of this period is considered lovely. Well, no, that's no true. was writing like Cicero was writing, and Cicero is the be-all and end-all. Um, but this is... But well, they can bugger that, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> but this this is the interesting thing that Gildas seems to know. Like, for example, he knows Virgil. He makes a few references to quotes from the Aeneid and that sort of thing. So he's clearly undergone exactly. a, a traditional Roman education. So what I think that means is when he looks at people like the Saxons or indeed even British kings of his day, he just looks at them and thinks, well, you're all barbarians because none of you can behave like <laughs> Romans. None of you are behaving properly like Romans. And I, I wrote an article that came out last year in which I pitched that I kind of made the proposal that actually Gildas sees very little difference between kind of British warlords or Saxon soldiers, and he sees their behaviour as kind of much of a muchness. They're all just sort of rude soldiers, basically. <laughs> so basically and so, he was a snob. Yeah, he was. He was a massive snob. But what that, but that kind of raises questions for, because people often see him as making this very clear divide between people who are Romans and people who are barbarians, and so the barbarians must be barbarians, and that's what Gildas is telling us about. Mm -hmm. But maybe when he's having a go at people for being kind of nasty, evil barbarians, what he's actually doing is identifying people who he thinks are kind of a bit inferior and rude and kind of vulgar mm -hmm. and, you know, soldiers, because, what you know, in Roman ideology, the difference between kind of being vulgar and the barbarian and being... These categories are actually very fluid. Yeah. So, but that, but what that then means is it has implications for what we understand these texts to be telling us about who real Saxons are and whether we can actually identify them through things the text tells us. It's, it's... See, this is why I do sometimes, just sometimes, mind you, a bit sympathise with people who want the simple narrative of like, well, everything was shit and then the Anglo-Saxons came and stomped on everyone and then the end. Um, because that's a nice, easy narrative that you can do in like three sentences. Um, and the other option is, gosh, isn't it difficult? <laughs> <laughs> um, hang on there while I pull out all my books and we talk about ethnic identity. <laughs> Uh, and I, like I can totally see why people would go mm, yeah uh, a little bit but because it is very complicated and hard and 
a lot of I think depends on what you want to be looking for mm. um, and it's also kind of uh, you're kind of doomed to dissatisfaction because <laughs> the end answer is we know so little <laughs> so uh, here is our best guess everything is heavily biased have fun with that are you having fun with this Gina because like I at least I know about like Gaul and Italy and Spain during this period Mm -hmm. and it is at least there are some textual sources that you can analyze but how how have you found this have you found if if you wanted to fling yourself out the window a bit (laughs) no this is the thing it's really really fascinating but really kind of equal equal levels frustrating because yeah everything is tantalizing and nothing is complete (laughs) um which i think is probably true of most of history and maybe the reason i was scared off at second my second year of university (laughs) because (laughs) you were never going to get a concrete answer yeah because i like having an opinion that i can stand firm on (laughs) and you never oh my goodness yeah because and yeah this period of history like this kind of fourth to sixth century is probably the most argumentative like (laughs) stand up row people calling each other fascists in conferences and that's a genuine thing that happened um (laughs) like like as far as people having an opinion that they are going to plant their feet in the ground and literally shout at each other about this is a period you need to be in Like I was so as in the lead up to this, I was reading like little reviews to see how these books went down when they came out. And I was reading a review of Guy's Worlds of Arthur, which is his book for non-academic audiences about um, this period. And it ends this book was written by a full professor at an English university and is published by the Oxford University Press, yet it's descent from the the standards of Sir Frank Stenton, Kenneth Jackson and Peter Hunter Blair is catastrophic. (laughs) As we behold with dismay this volume, we may ask if the dark ages of the title are here and now. (laughs) I think that review is barely worth the paper it's written on. I mean, it's a ridiculous (laughs) review. Um, but that is a genuine review that was written about it and that is like um, and then I like also read another one it's like this is brilliant and amazing it's one of the most fascinating books you'll read in ages <laughs> but um, but this is the kind of thing that these these books prompt like either gushing love mm-hmm. or this is not worth the paper it's written on and I can't believe that anyone would dare put their name on this nonsense mm-hmm. it's it's precisely because and I, I don't know whether it's because everything that happens in our source material for it is so messy or whether it is just that happens to be the case but this is the period which everyone wants to read something into and produce something out of and it's made, partly it's because the names are also so deceptively familiar yeah you have people called the angles you have people called the franks you know which gives you france you have people called germans you have rome and this is sort of you know these are the foundational narratives yeah, and I think there's for modern national identities. I feel like there's, and I don't want to be all judgmental about everyone, but I think this country does have a bit of an obsession with finding a national identity, and they're basing it around this time that doesn't have a lot of hard evidence, and so you can choose to project whatever you want onto it in this sort of messy way, where you know sometimes you are the proud Britons and sometimes you are the Romans, and. Um, it becomes very emotionally important because people are using that to build up their own personal identities, which are obviously very important to them. But that makes it so much harder to be, you know, objective about things. 
it's it's the very tools that we use to study this period. The materials that we study, the tools, the methods we use to study them, were originally developed precisely for those reasons mm -hmm. to try and shore things up about identities or make ourselves or our nation or what have you feel confident about its place in the world and why it exists. So that means that when we come to this material, it's extraordinarily difficult, especially if, you, you know, your understanding of early Anglo-Saxon history is Frank Stenton writing in the mid-20th century, <laughs> you know, and Britain is at the final kind of climax and then sort of decline of its empire. Mm, yeah. And goodness, could they not separate themselves from that? <laughs> But neither can we, you know, the no, methods no. and tools I, mean, I use yeah. are the same, often the same methods and tools that these people are using. And I'm constantly concerned that when I'm reading a piece of evidence, sort of, am I, you know, relying on methods that have their origins in sort of nationalism and imperialism? And am I, do I need to, I find myself constantly having to check myself and the things I try and read into this material. Mm. And that's why it produces this kind of constant doubting and second guessing, which <laughs> some people find so frustrating I, I find it quite empowering and liberating actually i find the idea that everything's a bit uncertain and up for grabs quite it makes this exciting but it polarizes people i know people who in equal in equal kind of quantities either latch on to this period and love it and just sort of and obviously emma you were obviously one of these folk as well yeah but then you find others like i have a mate who is also a, currently finishing his phd at the university of york who did the module on this with me um on the late roman empire with guy Housel at york and sort of said i am never coming back to that period ever again <laughs> oh my god it is it is ethnogenesis and barbarians and all yeah. of these horrible angry arguments never again and quite a lot of those angry arguments are in german just to make it even more fun <laughs> Oh, did which is either a, like, and say quite hilarious because I I enjoy the angry arguments like the historiography of this period is as fascinating to me. Admittedly, my PhD was very much uh, on like trying to focus on individual, not individual, but lived experience as much as possible and culture mm -hmm. because that's easier to, to talk about than the rest of it. But angry arguments in German, just, I love them. <laughs> angry arguments with just people declaring that the other is not worthy of their job or mm -hmm. in some way deficient, love it always. I am so... I'm down basically for the best anecdotes, which I always got from Gregory of Tours, who is a, a Merovingian chronicler of history for and also a bishop and was great. And I'm down for people shouting at each other. Those are my favourite things in history. Have you seen a member of the esteemed medieval Twitterati, uh, <laughs> Joe Edge? is currently tweeting a series of polls about Gregory of Tours. Is he? And the, ti the, 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 title, she, she's, the title of her series of polls is, it's like, I can't remember whether the title's like Greg or Mag or something, but the idea is, is this, is this a story from Gregory of Tours or is this a headline from a chatty, glossy magazine? <laughs> I'm less looking at it now. Uh, buried alive with my future wife, but only one of us got out alive. That is Gregory of Tours, I know it. <laughs> Is hashtag Greg or chat? Evil stepmother tried to infect me with diarrhea. <laughs> but I survived to tell the tale. <laughs> I honestly, yeah, this is everything you ever want to know. Um, <laughs> lacerated by a woman hating spectre, Greg or chat. <laughs>
That's very well, good. Well, now I know what I'm doing with the rest of my days. <laughs> Should you want to encounter more of these wonderful headlines, um, Joe Edge's uh, handle is Hagenilda, H-A-G-E-N-I-L-D-A. That is incredible. Um, I can't see the... I wasn't really on Twitter when I was doing my PhD, or at least in the point of my PhD where I wasn't tearing my hair out. But had I ha- if I had been, I would have had such a good time with these. <laughs> um, my personal favourite from Gregory of Tour is a bit, and I can't remember now which king it is, but it's like Childebert or Childeric, they've all got names like that, um, Who go, whose wife comes to him and says, my sister needs a husband and I want you to, like, you need to choose her a husband because it's that time. And he goes, okay, I'll go and have a wee look around the court and I'll see who's good and who's available and we'll find her a good husband. And then he comes back a little while later and goes, I've had a wee think, I've decided I'm the best person to be her husband. <laughs> Because really there's no one better than me and she deserves the best. Um, And then it's really unclear as there's a massive argument about whether the Merovingians were polyamorous or not, or polygamous. Um, And so it's really unclear as to whether he married... Polyamorous Merovingians. (laughs) They're definitely polyamorous. But yeah, it's really unclear as to whether he just has both of them or whether he divorces her and then marries her sister. But either way, it feels like it was an awkward conversation. Yeah, it kind of gone down smoothly at that particular... No, uh, <laughs> Merovingian wives tended to be a bit murdery as well, which is good for Oh, nice. Good for them. We should do an episode on Merovingians. Somebody ask us a question about Merovingians. Like, who were the oh, Merovingians? Oh, just, just Fredegan. <laughs> exactly. You could do it on on Fredegan alone. There's a Disney princess. There's a, there's a, there's a like, book. It's now a book, but it was originally a website called Rejected Disney Princesses. I love that website Princesses. so much. <laughs> and Fredegan features, like, front and centre... With a, a cartoon of her slamming her daughter's head in a yeah, chest. Slamming her daughter's head in a in a chest. <laughs> Which is a narrative from... Uh, she's great fun. Uh, Probably not for her daughter. Yeah. I mean, no. No. The story's good, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Now we've got... <laughs> There's also a fascinating... We can just have a good laugh. I mean, that's what history is to a lot. What's the Marx thing? First is tragedy, then is comedy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Which really sums up the whole thing, actually. I think that it was kind of uh, epitomised the whole situation of what that means. Here's some information. Don't really know what it means. Was the end of Roman Britain devastating and traumatic? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Then again, maybe not. (laughs) I feel like it probably was. If you were... In the Roman power structure, like you're a decurion or you are like in like in that system and then the army left and then there was no more system, then it was probably quite distressing for mm-hmm. at least a while. Um, and if you had a nice villa and then you had to leave it, it would probably pretty yeah. shit. And I think like um, in, if you... Were, but that's a minority of people, to be if honest. If you were to put it in like modern terms, all things considered, it's still a massive political upheaval and that sort of thing tends to have ramifications for a lot of people, if not everyone. Yes. So there was, you know, there's probably some strife. Some, <laughs> some light probably, low-key strife around. There was probably some light low-key strife. <laughs> but it wasn't apocalyptic, probably? Is yeah. that where we were landing? I mean, I don't think everyone was lying down on the floor, weeping, gnashing of teeth tearing their skin off. No, I mean, look at how we're behaving now with Brexit looming and Trump's America being the disaster that it is and the looming water wars. Most of us are still just getting on with our day-to-day lives. That is true, actually. I think the answer to this question has some sort of important ramifications for what 
we try and do and we try and understand the voices from the past, yeah. which is... Yeah. So we have to be attentive to voices from the past in their kind of variety and their colour. And the answer to this is sort of... It depends on who you ask, really, doesn't it? As you mentioned, <laughs> those, those urbane elite, for them it was a disaster. For kind of your agricultural peasant labourer, maybe not, but maybe. Yeah. But we don't have those voices to tell us. So we, it's kind of there's a duty on us as historians to try and be as attentive to those voices, the ones you don't normally get to yeah. hear, as much as you possibly can. When and try instead of just creating a simple narrative from one perspective and layering it over things. Yeah. And actually, you can think of the example here of well, so-called Trump's America. We've seen endless, endless outpourings of narratives of, oh, these poor white working class from the Midwest, why is no one listening to their story? We have endless stories of people saying no one is listening to their story. Everyone is listening to their story. It's the only story we hear. Yeah. We never hear a story about, you know, kind of the various African-American or Mexican immigrant communities or LGBTQ people or all the various people that or you know, the, the endless people in kind of what are basically concentration camps right now in Trump's America. Why, why aren't we listening to them? And this is in a, peri in a period of time where we have those voices to listen to and they will produce a narrative that is far less rosy and far less simple and straightforward than trump's kind of narrative of sort of kind of white middle class cry and in his case extremely upper class crybabyism yeah and and i imagine so that the romano british elite were massive crybabies at this time <laughs> it seems like a fair um, assumption yeah so, uh, do you think that's an answer to the question? Yeah, I mean, I as think much as we right. ever yeah. actually managed to answer people's questions, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's answered yeah. the question. Detailed and expert. Yeah, that was really fascinating. Um, yeah, James, thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much for having me. Um, where can we find you on Twitter, James? So you can follow me on at DJM Harland, um, H-A-R-L-A-N-D. And I recommend it because he's very interesting. I can't even remember where I found you on Twitter, but I'm following you for ages and you're always very interesting. <laughs> medieval medieval Twitter is a, is a it's good place. strange and active network. I tell you, actually, it is knows? one of the places where I feel like genuinely good scholarship is going on on Twitter all the time um, <laughs> and having genuinely interesting conversations. And it's one of my favourite Twitters. The digital... Let me start that again. <laughs> digital humanities live on. Yes. No one knows what they are, but that's maybe what they are. <laughs> so, yeah, that's where you can find James. Next episode, we are answering a question from Nick Shooter, who is going to have a baby next month. Ooh. Who might... Um, and his question is, because he's thinking about fatherhood, <laughs> at some point I'm expecting to tell my child you've never had it so good. What historical facts can I back this up that with? That's a fun question. Ooh, <laughs> that's a, oh, that's a rocky and, oh, they all see, are. But... This is what I'm saying. People ask us only the simplest <laughs> question. <laughs> Everything is so black um, and white on this podcast. <laughs> so we're going to be wandering into the world of the history of childhood, which is a great fun mm -hmm. and in no way complicated or difficult. <laughs> or anything <laughs> and if you have a question then you can tweet us at at sexy history pod or email us at sexy history pod at gmail.com or find us on facebook when i remember it's mm -hmm. there at sexy history pod 
You can leave us reviews. We like that when we remember to look. You can find me at at Nuclear Teeth. And you can find me at J9 and F. And you can find excellent producer Oliver at at Kiwa. And, oh, I forgot to mention this in the last episode. My book's out now. Yes. You can buy my book. I yes. I a couple of chapters in and it's very good. I highly recommend you buy it. It's funny and interesting and very, very good. It's very good, Emma, is the thing. Thanks, Janina. I don't have my physical it's copy yet, but... I've been reading on the Kindle. I still need to get my hands on a copy, but I am currently making my way through the monograph based on your thesis. Oh, see, my other book, the one that they made me take all the jokes out (laughs) of. (laughs) (laughs) One joke survives. If you can find the one joke, then you get a bonus prize because you'll be the only person who read it. But my other book is called Agrippina, Empress, Exile, Hustler, Whore, and you can buy that now in bookshops and on Amazon. So that's exciting. So do that and then tell me it's good. And until then, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much, James. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Bye, Janina. Bye, James. Bye. Bye. Surprise, motherfucker.